0: At this point, it is hopefully clear that the dehumanization and subjugation of a people group is a well thought out process. People don't kind of sort of oppress another people group, but they do so with intentionality and conviction. Many conditions of the urban context were socially engineered to maintain the economic structures that existed in the United States during slavery. The status quo has long been established. Yet the reality is that once the damage is done the damage is done. After a people group has been oppressed by another for centuries, the same amount of intentionality has to be placed in restoring health to the oppressed community. To suggest that things will just fall into place is to disregard the course of history and the law of motion. For every action, there is indeed an equal and opposite reaction. This is my Black Book Journal. What's up, y'all? Welcome to my Black Book Journal, powered by Axe Jesly, Love Mercy. And the opening quote came from the book. We Want a Different Story, The Power of Narrative and How It Influences African-American Male Identity by Terrence June Gray. And I'm really excited about today's show because I actually interviewed Terrence Gray to talk to him about this powerful book that I'm really excited to share with you all. Before we jump into it, a couple things. Um, You all, there is a little bit of language in this uh, that you may not be used to hearing on My Black Book Journal, um, but it's only used in the context to talk about how black people have been referred to um, historically um we also talk a little bit about a a little bit about racial violence so um if you want to sit this one out please feel free to do so um but you know for you all that might not be familiar with the history of racialized violence in this nation and how that has affected the narrative um, about black men and black people in general then i think you should listen in but hey you have the right to choose whether or not um You want to participate in this conversation. With that being said, you all, I want to read a listener review by Jay Carl, whose heading is gold. He says, Danny brings life experience, vulnerability and passion to reviewing black books and studying black leaders from black perspective. It's gold for whoever is listening in. Look, J. Carl, I really appreciate that you you would leave a um, comment like that. You all, if you are enjoying listening to My Black Book Journal, then please rate, subscribe, and leave a review. Um, I'm so grateful that you all would tune in. I know there's a lot of options out there, (laughs) to my understanding. Um, iTunes, I think, just hit about 2 million podcasts, so... There's a lot out there. So thank you all for listening to My Black Book Journal. Let's jump into it. So what's up, y'all? We have a special episode for you today. I have with me Mr. Terrence June Gray, who wrote the book. Let me pull the book up. I have it right here in front of me. We Want a Different Story, The Power of Narrative and How It Influences African-American Male Identity. What's up, Terrence? Welcome to My Black Book Journal, man. Look, I'm going to kick it to you really quickly and let you introduce yourself for the people.
1: Absolutely. So what's up, everybody? Good to be on the podcast. Uh, appreciate you, Danny, for bringing me out. Uh, I'm Terrence June Gray. I am a uh, I'm, 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 I'm a few different things. I'm a pastor, rapper, writer, husband uh, and newly a father to my baby girl, Luca. And so uh, uh, and, and, and more than anything, I'm a child of God and I'm thankful for that. And so. Uh, glad to be with y'all and, and, and thankful that my brother Danny brought me on to share about the book. So looking forward to chatting today.
0: Yo, that's what's up. Um, yo, he he is doing it all, man. He, he is doing it all. <laughs> and you're up in Memphis, Tennessee, right?
1: I am. I am. Born and raised in, in Memphis.
0: That's what's up. That's what's up. Well, man, big shout out to the new birth of your child, man. I think you said October, right? October 16th. October 16th. That's what's up, man. I'm a... Uh i have one but i'm i'm 11 years in the game man you know so i I tell everybody i started early because i'm young you know so (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's part of the testimony um (laughs) yeah yo but i came across your book man um back in 2019 which i think you released it in 2019 if i'm I'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. right so i came across march of 2019 Mm -hmm. cool um I came across your book, man. A friend of mine was working for um, a school. He took a group of students um, to on a service trip uh, over spring break and they went to Memphis and came across your work. He was like, man, I just found out about this brother. You got to read this book. So he he purchased the book for me and a couple other guys. And we read through the book, man. It was really encouraging. Uh, and so I knew I had to have you on the podcast Because as it encouraged me and it's encouraged him and other guys, I wanted to ensure that we were able to share this, man, and get this out into into more people's hands um, because it's it's needful, right? So you all, the book title, like I said, is We Want a Different Story, The Power of Narrative and How It Influences African-American Male Identity. So we're going to go ahead and jump into it. Terrence. When when the first page of the book, when you open it up and begin to read, you talk about culture and you talk about kind of what led you to writing this book and exploring our culture as black people more. Can you just share a little bit about that experience that you kind of speak about in the opening of the book and and that process of leading you up to writing this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the beginning of the book, uh, I, I talk about. An event that me and my wife went to. We went to a Greek festival, and uh, one thing that we were noticing was just all of this different culture—the dance, the music, the food—just this rich uh, Greek culture. And my wife says to me, uh, on the way back to the car, "Man, I, I, I just wish we had something that deep and rich to pass along to our children." And I and I said, "Well, we actually we do—the the, African American." Uh, heritage in, in, in tradition is rich. We have a lot uh, to pass along. And then she was like, but well, it, the history doesn't really go back that far. We we only get taught uh, history up until the civil rights movement. We hear about Martin Luther King, and we might even hear about uh, Harriet Tubman and those type of historical figures, but we don't get that far back into our identity and our origins. And so we went back and forth, like married couples do, you know, about this. And, uh, but it it, it it created a burden in me to want to have something greater uh, to, to learn more about myself, but to, to have something greater to pass along to my seed. whether that be a girl or a boy. And, and, and so also just wrestling with these identity questions myself, I, I just felt led to dig a little deeper uh, because the the story that we're getting in the public and a lot of times that we even get in our communities isn't always uh, the most true. Or the most uh, positive, or the most affirming, and telling us who we are and what we're worth. So I, I just have wanted to counter uh, those lies with what's true. Not not something that's make believe. Not not trying to conjure up something, but what's true and what's real about Black people. And I think we we have a deficit of that. And so uh, that was the burden uh, for writing the book. Hmm, that's
0: real man and I actually so I want to share this quote with everyone. You said in talking about that the African American narrative is one that we should be proud of but one that is s- scarcely told and full quite often our story has been pieced together with duct tape and glue. What is worse is that the gaps in our history are often filled with lies. These lies often are further are furthered through pop culture and media. Y'all I couldn't read my own writing. Um <laughs> but Yo, so, so, like you said, not only like in our educational system do we not talk about, um, about the, the complete and thorough history of black people in this nation and before, right? Um, this nation, but we often, um, what's, what's left like up to our interpretation is filled in by the media, like you said, by entertainment, you know, by books. And so we're not learning about it in school and then, the society isn't telling us, hey, like you are more than just these few movements. Right. Which is important. We need to focus and take take a deep dive on the civil rights movement and, and what happened during reconstruction. Uh, you you talk about that in your book, but we, we really need to have a more thorough view of our history. Um, and so man, I appreciate I appreciate one, you being willing to take a deep dive into that and then write about that in this book. Um, and just be honest, right? Like your honesty in that, um, and, and, and before we really jump into it, like, tell us a little bit, cause you confront the fact that there's a lot of lies, mm. right. That fill those gaps. Like when you were thinking about putting this book together and you were thinking about like how to confront those lies, what was that process like for you? And like trying to be a, a truth teller, like in the, in the 21st century.
1: Yeah. Um, Man, a lot of this started with with introspection, uh, to be honest, you know, growing up as a a young black man in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a rich urban core. It's a chocolate city with 65 percent black. Uh, you 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 don't always get the most positive stories uh, told in your community and, and uh, you 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 get told that a black man. Uh, I don't know if I can say this word on the podcast, but you are—are are you a, a quote unquote a, a real nigger? Uh, yeah, right. That, Go ahead, speak uh, on it. Yeah, that language of well manhood is defined by by uh, the hyper masculinity that that is taught a lot of times uh, uh, by media or by by family or by by the streets uh, in, in, in the in the urban cores of, of our of our country, and so you know you get hit with that, uh, part of your black identity. Uh, you get hit with, uh, you know, narratives about how black man is supposed to treat a woman and and how is he supposed to relate to a woman or black man, uh, relate how black man relates to his kids. And those stories aren't always the most positive stories, but they, they are a story nonetheless, and they stick. And so, uh, by default, you just get what you get by osmosis, in the community uh, that you grow up in. And so for me, starting out, it was just doing introspection and being honest with myself about some of the lies that I had believed uh, and just accepted as truth. So,
0: hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's that's real. You go on to talk a little bit more about that self-awareness. Yeah. Um, but man, that's part of the narrative, right? Being called a nigga, nigger, yeah. you know, all those types of things have framed how we viewed ourselves and how society has viewed us. Yeah. Right. And so while we have tried to, you know, in, in some ways, I mean, as, as black people, and how you think about how we even use that word to yeah. define ourselves, yeah. um, you know, it's important that we understand one, the history of that, but also how that shaped how we were viewed yes. and how we talk about ourselves and talk about each other. Yes. Right. Um, And if we don't confront that. Right. If we just try to cancel that. Right. And 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 say we need to just do away with without the the confronting of it, um, then we're only going to do damage.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I've had to ask myself questions, uh, especially when I went into college for the first time. I I have to ask myself questions. Why don't I think that I'm uh, as smart as the white kids in this class? Why why am I afraid to raise my hand to answer this question? you know why? Why? Why are my views of what I can be so limited to, uh, you know, rapper, ball player, or or hustler? Not that there's anything wrong with playing ball or being an entrepreneur or doing uh, music, but sometimes we can be so limited to what we what we've seen. And, and I mean, I mean, man, working with youth, I've spent quite a bit of time working with youth as a youth pastor, uh, as a case manager, and I man, I've seen kids with so much potential, uh, limit themselves. And a lot of the times that limitation is due to a lack of exposure. Uh, and so I think that's why it's so important to, to, to not only, uh, counter lies, but just give people, uh, more, more options and to, and to help them see that they're more dynamic than what they're, what they're, uh, what they might believe about themselves. So, so yeah.
0: Hmm. So going, going back to, to the words that and the images that were used to describe us, right? Cause you really, you really dive into the history of that and how that, that shift took place um, from being observed and portrayed in, in society as lazy, as, as a jokester, um, as someone who shouldn't be taken seriously um, to being portrayed as someone who is, you know, a brute and a beast um, who gives in to the most um, um, raw sexual passions and desires um, and somebody who must be feared and we have to protect ourselves from um, to now that image of kind of pushing us into a certain um, a certain career path or a certain lifestyle, right? And you, you talk about that baller, that hustler, um, that rapper, right? Um, it's just it's just a reframing right from a you, you don't you really can't use your intellect, right, because you you to 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 now live and move and create. Now you kind of got to get pushed into what you can do with your physical body or your ability to put words together or your ability to go out there and sell drugs. And so um, you really you really take time to really dispel those lies. And something that really like stuck out to me was how you paint those pictures In the past by looking at stories. Right. You look at um, Henry Lowry. Right. You tell his story from the 1920s. But then you move to modern day and you talk about Philando Castile. You talk about Michael Brown. You know, the book was written um, before George Floyd. You know, Uh, it was written before Ahmaud Arbery. Right. It was written before Breonna Taylor. Right. Um, But but t- talk a little bit about the past and that the way we viewed black people and the present and how we view black men and how we talk about them and how there's a need to change those narrative and stories
1: yeah man the the first word that comes to my mind is purpose and who's defining a black man's purpose and how much power does that person have over determining that black man's purpose and uh, particularly when you think about the past you know we, uh, we as black men w- were stamped with an identity uh, to be used according to someone else's purpose and from the uh, the black man as being you know uh, you know fearful or or, or, or comedic, that, was, that had his purpose at one point. Right. He can, he he's he's not intelligent. He's not smart. He uh, he isn't a threat. He isn't dangerous. He's just he's just silly. Let's let's use him uh, for his 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 comedic attributes to us. He's humorous to us. And and so that was a point where that was brought to the forefront uh, of, of of you know mainstream media for his time. Uh, but once. Uh, black people found some 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 freedom, uh, post-slavery Reconstruction era era. What we see is black men having a little bit more freedom, and now therefore they are a threat. So what do we do? We we forecast them out into the public as a threat because they're no longer useful. Uh, they're no longer a joke it is no longer funny because they have some they do have some power so it's not it's not as funny anymore <laughs> to us and so it's more of a threat so we have to cast them in the public eye as a threat we we have to have we we have to have majority culture believing that they are a threat we need them themselves to think that they are a threat and therefore uh we can we can box them in for the purpose that we have for them uh, which is still to be used by us and that's just the cruel narrative that was created uh, at that time. And and it's just reinvented itself over and over and over again. Uh, The life didn't have value when it was just uh, meant to be a joke and something to laugh at. It didn't have value when it was just a monster or or a brute uh, to be uh, terrified of. It was worthy of being lynched. Uh, And that's why uh, there was no empathy. There was no sadness. There was no funeral Uh, There was no heartbreak because that life didn't have value. Then you fast forward uh, to stories such as George George Floyd and and Michael Brown. Uh, They aren't given justice again. And you have to ask yourself, uh, is this just that same narrative being reinvented again and the same story being played out again? And does this life have value Uh, or is it still just as valueless as a life was? 100, 100 years ago. And I mean, this is the 21st century. So, you know, we we will believe that we're a lot more civilized than that. But it's just amazing that, man, this stuff keeps reproducing and, and reinventing itself uh, as far as the, the injustice, the the lack of value uh, for for a black life. So much so that Black Lives Matter became a cuss word. <laughs> it became something right. At first, it was something to hide from, so people just, you know, turned their eye and said, all lives matter. And then it became uh, this violent uh, movement to some people. They call it with burn, loot, and murder, or, or, or however it's uh, caricature. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it's it's just the story keeps reinventing itself, unfortunately.
0: Y'all want to tell y'all really quickly about a show, The Secret Life of Black People podcast, and it offers theatrical glimpses into poignant, hilarious, memorable moments in the lives of ordinary black people. The show's first season was highlighted by the Bellow Collective on their list of 100 outstanding podcasts from 2020 by IndieWire as one of the best podcasts of 2020 and was featured on an episode of NPR Snap Judgment. One listener said, Whenever I look for a black story to comfort me or challenge me or relate to, I'd always find these tragedies about grief and trauma and injustice or Cinderella rags to riches story. Those are important parts of our stories, but there's more to black life. A lot of normal things happen to us, too. We teach our relatives about dating gaps, visit our parents in the hospital, uncover family secrets over the holidays. And that's what the show highlights in cinematic and imaginative ways. Y'all. To check out The Secret Life of Black People, go to www.thesecretlifeofblackpeople.com or listen wherever you get your podcast. That's iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Appreciate it. So you brought up that word monster, and that's something that you bring out a lot in the book um, because you talk about the American narrative. Right. And how in every every good story and every story, there's a protagonist and an antagonist. Right. Um, and there has to be the hero and a villain. Yeah. And a lot of time in American literature, in American history, the way we read it, write it, you know, the ca- players that we cast in that um, are often, you know, white saviorism, you know, the American experience, American um, exceptionalism and all these great things and when we talk about that that is a white story right the way we cast it the way we talk about it and the the antagonist right and that story um often is black people right And, and you take a deep dive into that and you use that term monster right uh and 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 how and it's a horror story right and we have to fight back this monster and when you kill the monster, when you defeat the monster, when the monster is overcome, then, you know, there's no sympathy. Right. There's only victory um, that we did away with it. Talk a little bit more about about like, your thinking and and putting that that pen to paper, because that, you know, for some people, they might read that and be offended or. They may think like, oh, no, it wasn't like that or that bad. But, you, you you, know, you painstakingly like go through and say, hey, this is how that narrative has played out time and time again. So kind of talk about what you were hoping to, you know, kind of invoking folks and like saying, hey, you know, this is how we've been cast in this American story.
1: Yeah, man. I just think there's a certain way that we treat people and there's a certain way that we treat villains or uh, objects that are not people made in the image of God. And, and quite often black men have been treated like villains, um, like objects, like not people made in the image of God. Uh, when you think of even Henry Lowry's story, we talk about him in the book, how he, he was working a job as a sharecropper He was grossly underpaid and he only wanted to be paid his adequate wages. So he goes to uh, the man who he worked for, uh, a white man, uh, just confronts him and has a conversation about him and his wages. And he shot. He shot on the spot, uh, but he came prepared uh, to that conversation. He was also armed and he defended himself. And uh, in, in defending himself, he he took the man's life who who shot him first. He fled uh, Arkansas, where he was, went to Texas, was caught, brought back to Arkansas, uh, set on fire, doused with gasoline, and 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 burned before a crowd. Uh, when the media disseminated the news, uh, they said on the headline, "This was an outstanding lynching success." And in uh, some of these lynching mobs, uh, kids could get permission slips to get out of school to come and watch. Uh, we have it on the record here in Memphis. Uh, uh, permission slips where well, teachers had signed permission slips to let kids go to lynchings and they would sit down with their lunches with their family and watch the monster die. Uh, because he, he 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 had what was coming to him. He deserved it. This was a victory for for the community. That's how you treat monsters. That's not how you treat a human being. And I've tried my best with the book to uh, use exposition and use real stories to, 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 to let the story give you the evidence by telling itself. And me not. Uh, I, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to tell a story that's not true. I want to tell it how it is and, and how it is is painful enough. And so for someone who might say that that's overboard, it's reality. The history books tell us, uh, unfortunately, it's not told enough in our classrooms. I really wish that these narratives were told more, not only in black communities, but in majority culture communities as well. Uh, not to necessarily shame them, but to give them awareness of uh, how the world that we live today was, was set up. There, there's a reason that minorities were pushed to the that, that are, there are, there's a reason that minorities in many ways are pushed to the margins today. Uh, that wasn't an overnight thing. It's not necessarily the fact that all poor people are bad people that make bad decisions and get on drugs, uh, as some uh, some people like to tell that story. Uh, the reality is this is this has been happening for a long a long time, and, and it can make you angry, right? Uh, it, it should break your heart. It should be an emotive response some of this and so it is i know in writing it it's provocative uh but I, I, it should be provocative not to the point of uh self-destructive thoughts or emotions but for hopefully for a person to read it and to to be led to repentance because i'm coming from a, a place of faith uh to in repentance meaning a place of turning around in the thinking and in the heart uh so that you can move forward uh for better so yeah, that's that's the hope. I, I'm not trying to beat people up. I'm not trying to, you know, elbow drop white people. Uh, uh, but I am hoping that you can take a if you are a white person listening to this, uh, take an honest look at this and, and just be honest about it. And if you're a person of faith, what is the Lord telling you to do uh, with what you're feeling and and, and what you're seeing? Because uh, one thing that I've been learning is that uh, when it comes to. Uh, the issues of race and specifically racial trauma, that trauma gets trapped in our bodies and not just African-Americans bodies, but white people's bodies is too, white people's body too. That's why when you hear about a story like Henry Lowry, you feel something that, that, that affects you in some kind of way. So instead of hiding from that uh, emotive response that you have, man, that that's something that we need to, uh, to deal with. So.
0: Yo, that's, that's that's true, and and you got to be honest with yourself. Like, what's your response? Yeah. Like, if you read this, if you hear that, like, if you're white or black or or another ethnicity, like, what is your response when you hear that story? Do you feel like the lynchers were justified? Do you feel like how dare this black man respond in that way? you know um you know and and it took place on and you you mentioned this in the book it took place on christmas day okay. right that he came and knocked on his door on christmas day and asked him for for a few more pennies right to feed and care and take care of his family right yeah. um and he was shot because of it because he dared to ask for more oh. and it's a, it's it's a similar story right i mean you talk about ballers ball players you know uh rappers and then when whenever they venture outside of their lanes white quote quote quotation marks um then then they're told to go back into their place right shut up and dribble shut up and play football you know get up boy off your knee right because you know that's not welcome here and and while someone may say well i didn't use the term boy like when when we have people that that tell athletes black athletes that, hey, you're outside of your place or rappers when they try to venture into business or into other lanes and become writers or producers, um, I get back into your lane. You know, when we when we have and you kind of bring this up in the book, when you dare to dream that you could compete, that you could go to college and that you could achieve. Hey, you're told, man, you know, you, you might be better off doing something else because you can't compete on that level. So you even share in the book, you know, your own kind of personal stories of how this is played out. Talk a little bit more about those experiences. I mean, you mentioned your time. At at college, you mentioned your time after college and working as a bank teller. Um, Talk a little bit about your experience so that people understand, like, you're not just talking about somebody else's experience. This is your lived experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, In high school, I was told by a teacher, uh, me and several other black students were told by a teacher. uh, That when we go to college, the white kids are going to blow us out of the water, they're going to be smarter. They're going to be well studied. Uh, they're going to outthink us, outperform us in the classroom. And so hearing that in my 99% African-American classroom in high school, in many ways, set me up at a at a mental disadvantage. The first time I stepped inside of a, a college classroom with probably 70% white students. And in many of my classes, I was the only black male. Uh, quite often I was. And so just that insecurity was on the inside of me because I had been told a story uh, about myself, how I was going to enter into this next chapter of my life. I had already been told that when you enter into this chapter of your life, you're going to fail on that stage. Here's why. Because your community hasn't prepared you adequately to perform well on that stage. White people are going to always outperform you, except that going with your life. And like that creates a trap. In in a young man's mind, either you just take it or you have to fight against it. But because somebody told you that, it's it's present. Unless by God's grace, you know how to just dust that off as a 17-year-old. But I didn't. So that 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 stayed with me uh when I went inside of the classroom at the University of Memphis. And so yeah, I, I was afraid to to speak up. I was uh insecure that I wouldn't perform as well in my tests and on my papers and uh you know, by God's grace, I, I began to do well and 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 kind of gain my confidence through checking my own work, uh, and, and doing well in my coursework. But that 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 re uh that that myth was still in my head. I had to fight against it. Um, you know, fast forward, I get to, uh, I'm I'm graduated and I'm I'm working as a bank teller at a bank here in Memphis. It's my first job out of college. Uh, I grew up in Whitehaven. It's a predominantly black community here in Memphis. Uh, And so some people consider it just a neighborhood, depending on who you're talking to, they may call it the hood, Uh, but it's a predominantly black community. And so I I got a job working on the outskirts of the city in a suburb, and I had never been to this suburb. And once again, I got this insecurity in the back of my head that uh, I got to make sure I got my act straight out here. I got to uh, maybe change the way I talk a little bit out here, and uh, be prepared to adjust because I'm in the suburbs now. And so I was already nervous and insecure about that having to drive out there and, and work out there. Um, and so I had a a day where some of that that insecurity kind of came to a head where my my supervisor says to me uh, because I was having some some challenges adjusting to the job. She was like, "Can you do this?" And like straight to my face in front of another employee, just checked my competency to count these because yeah, to count money. Uh, like, can you do this job? Like right there in front of my coworker. And I just felt so put on trial. So, uh, ashamed, uh, that this non-African American woman uh, is checking my abilities, um, and I already feel insecure about being out of here. So it's like my worst fear not being good enough. It's just it's happening. I, I mean I, I spoke back in the moment. I went to let her check me like that. I was like, <laughs> like yeah, I can do this. And uh I told him my GPA. I was like, I yeah, 3.6 GPA. I graduated with a 3.6 GPA out of the University of Memphis. What are you talking about? And that was how I responded. I literally said that to her face and went back to my <laughs> went back to my job. And um, on the drive home though all the insecurity welled up, bro. I, I cried all the way home, tears streaming down my face because it's like, yeah, in front of her, I was like, I'm not going to let her check me like that. But in, in my heart, I was like, dang, that's that, that doubt once again, like, am I good enough? Can I do this? Uh, you know, people have told me that when you interact with white culture, you won't measure up and, uh, you need to submit and bow down because you won't measure up. You're not on equal, you're not on the equal playing ground. And, uh, that story is told all throughout my city. You know, the education system in the city is not as good as the education system in the suburbs. So you're always going to get outdone, outperformed. Uh, and it's just something that people carry. And I know I, I've carried it uh, at moments. And so, um, but yeah, that was just, that's just a couple of incidents having to confront that. And I, I know I'm not alone in, in that. I know other black men ha- have dealt with that and it, and it it breaks my heart because it's all predicated upon a lie about who you are. It's a doggone lie. Like there's no reason that any black man should walk around with his, with his head down or should question himself anywhere he goes. And so, I mean, that's another reason I wrote the book. I'm like, that's just, it's buffoonery. It's foolishness (laughs) that I should, should doubt myself uh, because I'm in the presence of white company. Not that I should consider myself a, a black supremacist or I'm better than white people, but, Dog, we don't level playing ground. God, God made us both in the image of God, and the only reason that there's this idea that you're superior to me is because of a lie that was told at some point.
0: And and you go on to talk about that in your book, and and how those those narratives, those thought patterns, become institutionalized, and you talk about systemic racism. Right. And you talk about the long term effects of systems on people's thinking and decision making abilities, um, whether that be hiring practices, whether that be, you know, laws, whether that be, um, you know, educational systems, all that is affected. You said you go on to say by those thought patterns on, on race, right, supremacy um, and, and who, who's who's supreme in this story, you know, white supremacy and then who's inferior right um and and you really talk about those narratives and systems and you you dive into a few things you talk about slavery and uh the post reconstruction era um you talk about prisons um and then you 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 talk about what you call kitty prisons oh. um and how those thought patterns are institutionalized so you you talk about your personal experience and how that played out just trying to integrate yourself into the suburbs, into an area you weren't familiar with. You were told you couldn't compete in. You really couldn't really show up and be on the same level as the people who had gone to those school systems, the white people had gone to those school systems and who who had parents who knew and understood how to navigate those systems and institutions. Um, so you share that. But you talk about how when that's institutionalized, how that affects the psyche and society. So, talk a little bit though about those kitty prisons because you, you um, and and that system um, and your experience in those systems.
1: Yeah, uh, I had the privilege of serving serving as a case manager in Dallas, Texas, uh, for an organization called Cafe Momentum. Uh, it was basically a nonprofit that created pathways for young men after they transitioned from juvenile court. And so, career pathways, uh, life skills training, and just uh, case managers such as myself to walk with them as they transition. And so, um, man, I noticed that some of our boys looked like they were preparing for jail. And that said to me that they didn't have hope for a life outside of jail. Something in them had accepted that this is my fate. Uh, They would, you know, talk about cases that they had pending, and how they were just accepting that they know they weren't going to beat those cases, and so they got to get themselves mentally ready for jail. They have to be tough enough, aggressive enough, able to defend themselves, uh, able to defend themselves from sexual attacks. I mean, it got that real, uh, yeah. and so they they knew that there was like a pre. They kind of embraced that there was a preset destiny for for some of them, you know, and I. It's guys that I picked up for work to take them to work, um, who a few weeks later were, were sent to jail for life. Uh, one young man, he worked with us while he was going through his case. He didn't beat his case. He ended up going to jail for capital murder, and that was it. That was it. Uh, no more coming to work. You know. So he had been preparing himself for that. He, another young man, who I had worked very closely with. Um, you know, I had to suspend him from the program for a week once. And I sat down and I talked to him. I was like, man, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Like that I got to send you home. Uh, but man, I was like, this is, we're trying to give you opportunity. Uh, you know, me and this young brother would go out and eat dinner. uh Whenever we got out of work, I try to talk with him. Uh, but he kind of knew in his mind where he belonged and where he was going in, in his mind. And so uh, I'll never forget it. It's about five years ago now, Easter weekend. He shot three people, killed two of them, doing the rest of his life in jail. And uh, he kind of, you know, you kind of can see that's where he saw himself going. Uh, Another another brother, ah, yeah, Uh, uh, young man I I worked with closely. He, same story, uh, got murdered, you know, two years ago. Shot, shot, shot in the head. Um. And and, and 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 kept going with it, and kept going with that lifestyle. to it, it stopped. He got stopped. And so, when I was in that environment, um, shoot, I would feel the stress and the trauma. <laughs> that's from being there. Uh, when I when I got off work uh, from that environment. Um, but what I saw is that, you know, collectively they had embraced. That this institution that they had spent time in as teenagers and juvenile, uh, man, it wasn't reforming them. Uh, It wasn't correcting them. It wasn't encouraging them. It wasn't giving them hope that in many ways uh, they were throwaways. And that's what they call that. That was the term in Texas uh, that they used to describe these boys uh, throwaways because there was nothing that society knew to do with them besides lock them up. And so this nonprofit that I worked for tried to create an alternative to that by providing them with, with jobs, by providing them with pathways and mentors and exposure. But we had to help them do so much unlearning and, uh, and deprogramming because by the time they met us, they had already been programmed for prison. Uh, and I believe from hearing that story is what they told me like. In juvenile court, I mean, it's just like jail. It's fighting. It's it's survival. It's uh, you know survival of the fittest, and there there has to be alternative than just locking a bunch of young men up in that type of box, uh, and and so that's what this program that we were a part of was doing. And I just I mean just to give a solution to throw a solution out there, uh, it saved the state money. Uh, to, to, to create these kind of alternative programs, it saved the state more money. If you want to look at it from a financial or economic standpoint, it saved money to create these type of programs as opposed to running boys through the system. Um, but yeah, so it's not the most economically, uh, smart thing for, for a society, but it also, you're dealing with lives and people, um, so, yeah, I guess my, my 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 two cents on that is just I've seen that it's more beneficial to to to, um, to create programs uh, to help young men uh, discover a better path in life instead of just locking them up and pretty much just preparing them for jail. So hmm.
0: in, in the book, you, you call the system the uh, juvenile correction system and and you said it, it doesn't correct Right. um, And I, I was I was appreciative that you didn't call it the juvenile justice system because justice isn't always done. Um, And, you know, when you think about those solutions and you talk about this, that we have to put as much energy, as much thought and as much resources, as many resources into as we can into solving these issues if we're going to turn around. Um That long history of oppression, if we are going to change the narrative as a nation, right um, and it's and, and you point I mean, it's incumbent on us as black men, and you, you kind of hit on that at the end of the book when you give solutions on or or not solutions. Um, when you give suggestions on um, some things that we can do from reading this book, you know, it's on, incumbent upon us to to continue to engage in the work of advocacy. Protests of um, being present in the lives of others to showing that through our lives and through our commitment to um, our communities um, that we can be something other than um, what we've been told. Right. Um, and that we can expose other folks to different career paths. You said, like you said, I mean, how can somebody expect to be a lawyer or a doctor if you've never seen that before? You know, like, how can you expect to be some profession that you've only seen in movies, right, or television shows, but you don't know anybody? So like, how can you complete uh, med school if you don't know anybody who's been, which is not I'm not saying it's impossible. Plenty of people have done it. Yeah. Right. But it limits the amount of people that will do it because you don't know anybody that's completed a med school. And how strenuous that can be yeah. Um, or any other profession like you went to seminary. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: So like. If you don't know anybody who's completed seminary, like, or you don't even know what seminary is, right? Or just getting a, an undergrad degree, which is a major accomplishment. Um, if you don't know anybody who has has done that, then it's very hard to have the hope yes. that you can be the first one um of accomplishing that. Um and and you're right about those are those like if we want to change the outcomes, we have to change the the way we view Right, the people that are negatively affected by these systems. Yeah. Um, and to use the term throwaway, yeah. right, or delinquent, yeah, right, is 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 not appropriate language to talk about people. And I, I remember we share this in common. I work for as a case manager as well, teaching some cognitive behavioral therapy classes to black men who were in a drug and gun court. Um, and man, I, I remember working with them and i loved it i i loved i loved every moment of it um but it exposed me to the fact that there was so much that i didn't know yeah. right there was that was another world that existed in this same city i grew up in that i didn't know how how to really help right and 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 to to help help to show that there there are other options but listening right listening to them taught me so much. Oh yes. Hearing their stories, right? Getting to know them and I realized that man, they know. Like they they know what they need, yeah. right? This is their stories. They know how interacting with the court system, interacting with the educational system, interacting with other systems. They know how their lives have been impacted and affected by this and I need to shut up and listen, right? And then from listening, I could take the little bit that I know and, and help navigate, right. To try to pr- help provide opportunities and get them where they want to go. Um, but that was a learning process, man. And it took me being willing to understand, I didn't know everything. yes, Right. And that's what, that's what your book is telling us. Like that's so much we don't know. And as long as we, as long as we, and I, let me, let me say this actually, because you talk about social engineering in your book, right. And you talk about, the effects of redlining on communities and you talk about the educational divide and you talk about economic gaps. But you you talk about something that's so profound that speaks to this. And it's the fear of scheme. Right. Talk a little bit about that fear mid scheme, because I had never heard that before. I, I don't know if you created that. And if you did, it's genius. You should patent it. You should like set like it, it is genius. You all um, talk talk a little bit about that, that fear of scheme. And how people yeah. create systems, right? To and and the, the the different things they do to to separate each other.
1: Yeah. Um, so that that idea came to my mind just through uh, observation of what's what's what goes on so often in my city, uh, and I know this this happens in 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 many cities uh, across across the country, uh, but. But I, I've seen it clear as day uh, here, here in Memphis, and so um, you know, personal relationships—that's one factor of the the the, the fear of escape. It's like people have relationships that that give them access, resources, power, um, and, and, and 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 all of the things that they experience in their life. A lot of times, they get to experience those things or have those resources or have that access uh, because of a relationship and uh, with that people close off those relationships to uh, a a, a select a select a select group of people and by select i mean truly a select group of people people that they select to share their insight wisdom resources power uh, lives with and in a city like mine a lot of times you have to be in a certain socio-economic demographic uh, to gain access uh, to those relationship circles and then after that a lot of times a certain skin color accompanies those socioeconomic circles. And so that's, that's the way that people, uh, uh wall themselves off. Uh, and then the educational systems, uh, in Memphis, the schools were integrated, uh, not too long after the assassination of, of, of Dr. King. And, 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 and so uh, we saw that, uh, here in Memphis and, uh, with, with the integration, um, you had white kids and black kids going to school together. So there we go. There goes a relational bridge potentially. Then, uh, more resourced white, uh, uh, Memphians, uh, took it upon themselves to, 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 break that bridge and, 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 and in many ways, mass, mass produce our private school sector here in, in the Memphis area. And this, this happened all across the country. So, uh, We're not going to school together. Uh, We're going to we're going to price black people out of our schools. And so educational systems. All right. That that's another uh, that's another factor of this fear. So we don't have personal relationships with each other and we don't go to school together. And there's inequality and equity there. Uh, Also, uh, legislation, legislation laws are passed, uh, such as redlining laws. Uh, that force people out of uh, neighborhoods, or, or or not allow them to move into certain neighborhoods, or allow certain neighborhoods to gain access to loans, and 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 and, and uh, yeah, and, and wealth, and, and so you have to be in a certain demographic to uh, to receive access to those loans, and and so certain neighborhoods you have homeowners, and in certain neighborhoods you have people in public housing. It's- it's already getting very hard to have a relationship <laughs> with someone or have access to the same things that somebody else across town has. You cut off the relationships, you cut off the educational systems, and you've even um, redlined me out of the neighborhood. And so then you get, get real estate. Uh, with real estate, you make money off of homes. You can build wealth off of real estate and that wealth can accrue and you can invest that into other things. And so you got one community building wealth through his real estate in another community uh, not essentially. And some of those communities are in public housing, especially when you look at my city, Memphis. And then here's the one that, man, it's like we probably have a little bit more choice with, but it's religious life. Uh, we're supposed to be all Bible believing Christians. And so surely we can make that one work uh, because we have Jesus in common, but quite often that, that uh, that's not enough. And so uh, we, 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 we draw the line there as well. And so, yeah, with those five dimensions, yeah, a dual track of life. You created a dual track of life. Um, uh, you've created the haves and the have nots and it was systemically done. You know, it, it's systemically done. Uh, people are priced out. A lot of times people are priced out, of, uh, of, of, of access to, to certain things and aren't, Given the same resources to better their own community, and that's like the kicker, so it's not like well, uh let's price you out of these opportunities, but give you the wages and access to resources to build up your own community. It's like no, we're gonna disinvest in your community and reinvest in a in a place that you don't even have access to um I grew up in white haven it was it was uh it's now affectionately called Black Haven uh, by, by the Black community that lives there because <laughs> it's all black now. Uh, but it used to be uh, a white uh, suburb on the outskirts of, of our city, and you know I grew up there in the you know uh, early '90s, and it was still a level of investment in, in White Haven as far as uh, you know shopping centers and restaurants. That was industry. That was uh, there was a, a, a economic life uh, pumping through White Haven, And as uh, the white flight took place and the white community moved out. And once again, I'm just I'm just going by, you know, what, what we've seen. Like this is just this is just exposition. This is just this is what happened. Uh, the community lost investment. And then, uh, you know, you know, c- crime began to uh, you know, take place in some of these uh, areas. And you saw house uh, values decrease, home values decrease uh, before the crime even upticked, though. So you saw the property value go down just because white skin moved out. And before crime upticked, um, it was already a disinvestment in the community. So that's just just systemic stuff. And just as a kid, you know, you grew up like, man, why can't we just have good things? Like, why can't we have nice things? why they have to take all of the stores that i like to go to away. and so i mean i'm not understanding social engineering or systemic racism much but all i know is all the good stuff is where the white people live and they took and, and it's not here anymore. and so that's stuff that you have to embrace and, and uh man wrestle with as a kid, you know. and so it's just it's just a reality. It's literally just just reality. So
0: yeah, and in in the book, man, you talk about that that this is reality, right? And that we have to be prepared to live and and act in this reality. Um as you are as as Christians, right? You spoke about that religious life, as believers, as black believers and um that care, right, about people and that do believe in speaking the truth, right? Like we're not hiding from the truth. We we believe in speaking the truth and doing the works that Jesus did. Um, when I think about your fear, I think about if religious life is at the top, right? Then like we as Christians, if we see that in society and experience that we should be pushing that down, like we should be pushing down on that, right? Like, because if, if our society has built this, this culture, uh, and that we have been complicit in as Christians, right? Let me just say as Christians are complicit in this culture that has been created, um, and help further this culture. Um, we, we have to now as reformers, right. Think about how we can from the perspective of the church begin to interact in these different systems to see change, right? Cause we advocate on behalf of a lot of things, yeah. right? How can we advocate, on behalf of these laws being changed, when you think about legislation, when you think about the educational systems, when you think about re, uh, real estate and those personal relationships, right? We have all engaged in the life of our communities in some way, right? Explicitly, and um, many cases, or implicitly, um, implicitly in many cases. I think that's a word. Um, in mm-hmm. in many cases, and so how then do we um now? As believers engaged to see a change, because if we don't, right, if we don't as the church, um, as believers, then why would we think something would change? Yeah. Right. Like we have like we're the light of the world, we're the hope of the world. And so I know as a black man, as a black Christian man, I've taken it upon myself and I know others. We have decided, right, that we're going to do something. Right. And just like yourself, you decided you're going to do something. You wrote this book. Right. You're 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 planning a church. Right. So you said, I'm going to confront this. We started this podcast um, to ensure that, hey, we were interrupting these cycles and these systems um, because it's incumbent upon us to ensure that 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 is done with hope and with the belief that one. We are made in the create we are created in the image of God and then two, we're called to engage in the life of our communities and the life of real people and to disrupt injustice wherever it exists. So, man, um, in, in closing, I want you to talk a little bit about the hope that you were like that came from this book. Like, what were you hoping this produced? Um, and you kind of you give it get into it in the book. So talk a little bit about that um, as we close out.
1: Yeah, man. um uh... It's just digging down and finding truth. And so, uh, like I said, I'm not trying to exaggerate an identity. I'm not trying to pump black people up to believe something about themselves. That's not true. I'm trying to help black men, uh, discover what already is true about them. And I think, man, it's just, uh, the danger of believing a lie. It just short circuits your entire life. Um, when you believe the lie that you can't be a good father because good fathers don't run in your bloodline, but that could make you not be a good father and it can, and it can cause you to carry on that generational curse uh, to your kids. When God has equipped you with everything that you need to be uh, a good father and uh, you can't, you know, start that, that, that business or, or fill in the blank. I, I just want to help people to, uh, you know, believe what's true about them. And so as a man of faith, I believe that God wrote the identity of what a black man is, uh, in into our DNA. He he created us in his image, uh, with values and and and, and qualities and attributes and with purpose and on purpose. And that's what you want to uh that's what you want to focus your identity on. You want to Seek the Lord for uh him for him to give you clarity about who you are and to remove those lies. Um uh, and that's what I you know that's what I want for uh for black men and others as they read this book, it is to 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 hold on to who they really are and not be driven by lies, uh to not be uh deceived into viewing themselves as something other or less. Than what they really are, and that takes work. When you've been, man, if you maybe have gone through abuse in your home, or uh, you just have grown up in a community that has limited your your, your thinking uh, of who you are and, and of your worth, and so yeah, I, it's 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 uh, it's a battle of the mind. That's uh, that's what I uh, that's what I initially saw. That was the that was the pain point that initially drove me to go down this path of, of writing this book, just that pain point of, of, of people not knowing who they are. And it's, it means so doggone much. And so, not like I said, I'm not trying to pump people up. I'm just trying to help you uh, deconstruct some things that might not be true about yourself. And for other people as well, even for majority culture people who read this book, I want to help you deconstruct some of the lies that you might have believed about Black men. And and that could lead to more rich and authentic and genuine relationships uh with some brothers. So
0: Man, amen. amen to that. Um man, Terrence, thank you so much for coming on my Black Book Journal. Before we close out, um, we do this thing called reading brings me joy, right? And so I, I see the background right now, you all can't see it, but I see the background behind you. You got a ton of books behind you. So tell us tell us a book or two or or several that has really brought you joy and why.
1: Yeah, man! I just got done reading one. Uh, let me let me pull it. It's right here. Uh, actually, actually, it's I don't know what I did with, it, but it's a book that I'm reading. Yeah, it's is right behind me. I put it up. Yeah, uh, did it's called "Didn't Didn't See It Coming." And uh, as we have been in this pandemic, it's a lot of stuff we all didn't see coming. Uh, (laughs) It's a book about how to, uh, you know, navigate uh, challenges in life, stuff that we that we don't see coming. But all of us are going to eventually experience. And he 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 takes a different route. He's not necessarily talking about the things that hit you from the outside. Uh, He talks about the things that come up on the inside. So he talks about cynicism and being cynical and how uh, he's noticing that a lot more young adults are becoming cynical. Like before they hit 30, people already think that the world is worthless and nothing good is going to ever happen. And uh, just the danger that comes with being cynical, like you have to have a level of uh, belief. And uh, it's just sad that a lot of people are getting cynical early. So even as we like navigate this issue, we can't be cynical about it. We have to have hope that change can happen and not necessarily uh, just lay out all of the reasons why I can't. So uh I n- I need to read stuff like that to keep me going, man. And, and as as we go through this 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 uh this fallen world that we're in. Mm. So
0: cool man. Well thank you so much. Um tell us tell the people how they can follow you. Uh keep up with your work and everything you have going on.
1: Yeah uh you can follow me on uh Instagram at uh Terrence June Gray901 and so at Terrence June Gray nine zero one Uh, and same on Facebook at Terrence June Gray blog Uh, but yeah you can keep up with me there I'm I'm usually posting and, and keeping people up to date as I drop new content and just share my life so
0: cool well that's what's up man thank you so much for being a guest on my black book journal you all we out
1: all right